Da, 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 da. Yeah, I'm not even going to do music today. I don't think for the Sans Brandon, Sans Jake episodes, we do music. I think we just get to it. It's just Nathan. He's talking to us and we're getting to it. And we're talking about Hamlet. I know you'd like Jake and Brandon to be here, but it seems like we're just in the time in life when scheduling is difficult. I continue to believe we will get through it, and I continue to believe in the show, and so do they. But right now, you're getting a Nathan monologue. Will it be better than all the monologues in Hamlet? That's not for me to say. That's for you, the listener, to decide. Anyway, let's talk about Hamlet. I love Hamlet. It is the most simultaneously diverse and unified piece of literature ever written. That is my contention. And I will explain what I mean by that. What I mean is it is one thing and it is all the things and it is that at the same time. And I cannot think of another work of literature that does that. So in in other words, something like Pride and Prejudice, it's a funny satire. It's a romance. It's two things, you know? And when it's being a love story, it's not exactly being a romance. And when it's being a romance, it's not exactly being a love story, but it contains elements of both and it kind of jumps between the two. So it's two things, and those two things are unified within one book, but they're not necessarily always happening one in the same during the same scene. There are many delightful places where they intersect, where that Venn diagram has the circles over each other. Hamlet, if you tried to make a Venn diagram of all the different things that it does, It would just be circles, overlapping, circles, overlapping, circles, all the way down. So it's a ghost story. It's a romance. It's a piece of political intrigue. It's a Freudian psychological deep dive. It's a buildings Roman in some way, a coming-of-age story. It's a revenge melodrama. It's a contemplation of life and death and the afterlife and suicide. It's an examination of activity and passivity, masculinity, femininity. It's a beautiful, rich repository of awesome soliloquies and monologues and one-liners and poetry. It does so many different things. And when it's doing one thing, it's doing 20 other things at the same time. When Hamlet is contemplating the nature of existence itself, the existential burden that we all feel, When he's doing, you know, the to to be or not to be speech, Polonius and Claudius are just off stage skulking. There's there's political theater happening at the same time. And Ophelia is like wandering around with her book. There's there's romance and there's psychological drama. Like half of the things, half of the circles that I just named are lumped on top of each other in this giant complicated Venn diagram thing. Just just in that one soliloquy, I cannot think of another I mean, outside of maybe some of the other Shakespeare's, but <sighs> even, you know, you take like King Lear and Macbeth, does it do as many things? I mean, King Lear maybe tells three or four stories. There's the political story. There's the story of the father. There's the story of the king descending into madness. You know, there's a lot there. It's very rich. I mean, Shakespeare had some uh, meat on his literary bones, you know? Uh, Shakespeare was a guy that was complicated and could do a lot of things at once. And I'm just going to say it. I think he's a genius. I think Shakespeare is a genius. But I can't think of a work of art that does as many different kinds of things all at once, all happening within the same lines of dialogue, all happening within the same scene, oftentimes, as Hamlet. You know, you think about 
Pride and Prejudice, one of my favorite novels. It does romance and it does satire and it does uh, buildings Roman. You, you could name like maybe five, you know, a handful of things that it does. And some of them intersect some of the time and that's some of the delight of it. But oftentimes when it's doing satire, it's actually not doing romance at the same time. It's switching gears. Hamlet often doesn't have to switch gears because everything is so layered and dense and all on top of each other that it's all happening at the same time. And it's, it's delicious. It, it, it's like eating. I have a friend who makes this awesome, I forget what it's called. It's called like a black forest cake. It's a German black forest cake. And it uses Kirschwalder, if that's, if that's how you pronounce it, this, this cherry liqueur and, and chocolate and this rich, dense cake with a whole bunch of sweetness and a whole bunch of flavors. And that is Hamlet. There's so much going on. You know, you read a bad book, Ready Player One, and it does one thing. You know, you're eating a baked potato. You read another book and you're eating a steak. You read a really, really good book like Pride and Prejudice, one of the greatest books ever written. You're eating a steak and potato meal. You're getting a steak. You're getting some potato. You're getting some corn, whatever. But Hamlet is doing so many things all at once. It's working on so many levels. It's always working on the level of beautiful poetry. It's always working on the level of convincing, psychologically real character study. And, and then there's ro romance. There's, I didn't even, did I, did I say ghost story? I, I think I did say that. But, you know, there's this haunted mystery that's hanging over this whole thing. I mean, there's just so many things going on, so many moving parts. And to think that a guy did it without a computer, I mean, that's just insane. That's just insane. I write and create for a living, and I, I make podcasts for a living. And just coming up with notes for a podcast, it's like I need to be able to copy and paste. I need to be able to move things around on a page easily. I, at the very least, I need a Bic pen. And if I had to write with a quill, or, you know, and, and parchment, and parchment was hard to come by, if I had to not have a whiteboard to keep things on, to keep ideas on, I don't know how I would sort out all my ideas how I would layer things together, even for making a podcast, even for teaching a, a men's group at church, for, for the various things I do. Like, I rely on technology. And here's Shakespeare. He didn't have any technology. just had a quill and parchment and his own brain. And I'm sure other actors and other people to help him keep track of things and whatever stories he was cribbing from to make this masterpiece. But he's got... So many things densely layered on top of each other. And I think if Brandon was here, he'd argue for The Tempest, maybe. And if Jake was here, he might argue for one or two things. But Hamlet does so many things all at once. You know, to take another example, to another point of comparison, just in terms of the great literature that we've read, you think about War and Peace or Anna Karenina. Wonderful books obviously. I mean, I can't believe I, the words wonderful books. I sort of hated myself as the phrase wonderful books came out of my mind because yeah, thanks. Here's your blue ribbon from Nathan. Wonderful books. Good job, Tolstoy. You did it, you did it, you did good. Four stars. Great job. Two thumbs up, buddy, on Anna Karenina and War and Peace. I think they're pretty good. But here, here's the thing. They do a lot of stuff, famously. Do those books do as many things at one time as what Shakespeare does in Hamlet? Anna Karenina is a comedy over here and a drama over here. 
and, or, or War and Peace, maybe to take the better example. It's a war story over here. It's a existential drama over here. It's a this over here. It's a that over there. How many different times, though, do those things, to, to use my apparently favorite metaphor, do, do the Venn diagrams actually overlap? When it's being a war drama, it's not simultaneously being a drawing room comedy. When it's being a drawing room comedy, it's often not being a war drama, right? Hamlet just does so many different things at once. The psychological examination of this guy's weird, melancholy inner being never stops. The political intrigue never stops. And all these different shades of romance and fathers and sons. and ah, It's wonderful. I love Hamlet. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And one of the big reasons that I love Hamlet, one of the big reasons I'm so excited to talk at length over several episodes with the fellas about Hamlet is because I think it does so much. And that's what this podcast is going to be about. It's going to be about why Nathan loves Hamlet. Uh, reason number two that I love Hamlet and reason number two that you should love Hamlet. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe this is a personal reason. I, I think I connect to it a lot more than a lot of Shakespeare's plays, than any of Shakespeare's plays. I, I love Shakespeare, obviously a pretty talented guy, wrote some good stuff. But what even comes close in terms of something that has obvious entry points for me, the reader, or for me, the watcher of the play or the watcher of the movie? What even comes close? I mean, Romeo and Juliet, okay, sure, yeah, I get it. I've been in love before. But that was a relatively, I mean, I love my wife. I'm glad we're in love. But the puppy love stage of life was actually relatively short-lived. And it's not something that I overly romanticize in my own mind. So I don't, I don't just connect to Romeo and Juliet at like, isn't it great to just be in love and make a ridiculous idol out of somebody? Yuck. You know, I, I, I get it. And I get why, you know, they tell stories about those sorts of things. But it's not something that I enter into really deeply. It's something that I'm just like, oh, well, that was kind of a silly part of my life. And I'm sure glad I didn't do anything dumb, like get the wrong message from a priest and kill myself. Uh, something like King Lear. I don't, I don't know if my family, insofar as my family has betrayed me, insofar as I've made really foolish decisions and they've rebounded over the years and driven me mad. Yeah, I get it. I, I empathize with it. Macbeth, and insofar as I've borne great guilt and so far as I've made sinful choices and so far as I've hardened in my sin and become a bully, you know, there's always something that you can connect to in Shakespeare, something that you can enter into because the guy's a genius. But Hamlet is a much more relatable protagonist for me because he's just a guy who's got a problem and he doesn't know what to do about it. And he ponders and he's sad and he tries to figure it out. And to me, that's just so deeply relatable. And it was when I was a young man, and it is now that I'm a little bit older, and I imagine it will be through my life. It's, it's not that I have found myself in every way going on a journey that's equivalent to Hamlet's in my life, but we've all been there. You know, we've all stood with a skull in our hand and pondered about death. I mean, I hope most of us haven't actually held a skull in our hand, but We've all asked ourselves the kinds of big existential questions that Hamlet asks himself. I mean, sure, we all have a little bit of Romeo and Juliet, in, and maybe this is a better way to say what I'm trying to say. We all have a little bit of Romeo. We all have a little bit of Juliet. We all have a little bit of Lady Macbeth. We all have a little bit of lots of them. There's a little bit of Falstaff in everybody. There's hopefully a little bit of Hal in everybody. But there's a lot of Hamlet in everybody. Certainly anybody who's 
ever been depressed, anyone who's ever had any kind of melancholy, anyone who's ever asked the big questions, which is most of us. I don't think it's just angsty teenagers. I think everybody has to look at their life at some point and think, am I doing a good job? What am I here for? And why am I here for it? And what am I doing to accomplish it? And what should I do now to really accomplish it? We've all had to ask ourselves those questions. And Hamlet asks himself those questions. It happens to be about this melodrama thing about his dad was murdered and he needs to get revenge and blah, 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 blah. But we've all asked to be or not to be. Like, is it, is it, you don't have to be suicidal to just ask yourself, man, is this life worth it? The whips and scorns of time, the pain, is it worth it? We've all asked that. Everybody's asked that. And everybody, everybody, absolutely everybody has felt like they are the person who is outside of the revelry that everyone can enter into. I mean, the opening moment of this play, the introduction of Hamlet, where there's this big party and Claudius is making these pronouncements and everybody's just happy and it's the king and yay the king and queen and hamlet finds himself on the outside of that i mean maybe that is maybe it's just as simple as that maybe this is why i relate to hamlet why i assume everyone can relate to hamlet because we've all felt like an outsider and hamlet is the ultimate outsider hamlet stands outside of everything and contemplates it and you don't have to be a particularly angsty person or a particularly lonely person to have felt like you're on the outside of something. I mean, it's high school, right? And then it's the workplace and then it's church. We all have those moments. I mean, maybe some of us just are so extroverted and so happy, but my wife's a huge extrovert. She loves people. She loves seeing them. And she still has those moments of just extreme crippling self-doubt where she's just like, everybody hates me and I don't know what I'm doing here and I don't know why I'm doing it. And I, I, I just need to find my North Star again because I've lost it. And Hamlet captures that feeling so well, so universally. Oh, mm. all right. Third reason why I love Hamlet, and I'm so excited to talk about it with the guys. It is an effective genre piece, or I should say it's effectively several genre pieces and all genres that I like. It's an effective political thriller full of back and forth and skullduggery and people spying on people and people trying to figure out how to get the angle or get the drop on the other person and things backfiring and somebody thinks he's going to kill him, but then he gets killed. Man, who doesn't love that kind of story? It's also a really effective, creepy ghost story with a lot of ambiguity and, you know, the hallmark of any truly great horror story, any truly great ghost story is a certain amount of ambiguity. Not, not always was it real or not. That doesn't always have to be the question, but what exactly is the nature of what I'm seeing and how is it meant to affect me and how should I be affected by it? These are questions that you have to ask yourself about the supernatural, and they're fun to see somebody ask themselves. So it's a great political thriller. It's a great ghost story. It's also a really sad, tragic romance. I mean, the way that Ophelia gets used up and discarded in this story is so sad. You don't have to be some kind of post-theory feminist critic to feel it for poor Ophelia. And Shakespeare has such sympathy for her. And it's just, you know, when it's played properly, it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. Okay, fourth reason why I love Hamlet and I'm super excited to talk about it with the guys and just talk about it in general. And I'm always excited to talk about Hamlet. It, I mean, it is uh, Shakespeare, of course, 
great poetry all through his plays and these wonderful monologues, this just like these guitar solos where characters just get up and are like, okay, now I'm going to express a thought that everybody's always thought and I'm going to express it in the most perfect way, the most beautiful language. I'm going to give words to things that were always nebulous until just now when I am going to give words. That's This is like all Shakespeare does is he takes something, rips it out of your soul, and gives it language. And obviously that's awesome. But Hamlet does it the best. Hamlet has the most of those guitar solos. To be or not to be, what a piece of work is man, frailty thy name is woman, get thee to a nunnery. I mean, just think about the lines that come from Hamlet. Think about the glory. I mean, even just the one that I always think of is just some random little aside at at the very beginning. Uh, Marcellus is talking about the fact that the ghost faded on the crowing of the cock, as he puts it. And then he says, some say that ever against that season comes wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated. So some say that when Christmas comes, the bird of dawning singeth all night long. And then they say, no spirit dare stir abroad. The nights are wholesome. Then no planets strike, no fairy takes, nor witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. <laughs> what a beautiful, perfect, poetic conceit. The idea that on Christmas Day, the cock keeps crowing so that all the ghosts think that it's morning and that they have to stay cowering in their tombs or their caves or whatever all night because that day of all days should be wholesome. I love that conceit. Maybe that's not original with Shakespeare. I don't know. But A, maybe it is original with Shakespeare for all I know. B, whether it is or not, he puts it in perfect language. And so you just have this wonderful little fantastical ghostly conceit. And then you have Horatio come back. Horatio, always the skeptic. So I have heard and do in part believe it. And then he says, but look, the morn in russet mantle clad walks o'er the dew of yon high eastward hill. In other words, look, it's morning. But man, why would you say, look, it's morning when you can say, but look, the morn in russet mantle clad walks o'er the dew, the dew of yon high eastward hill. It's just gorgeous. And Hamlet's just full of, uh, for, for my money, more of those things. Yes, it's like Temple of Doom has a lot of cool Indiana Jones moments. Last Crusade has a lot of cool Indiana Jones moments. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, a little light on the cool Indiana Jones moments, but Raiders of the Lost Ark is just one cool Indiana Jones moment after another. And that is what Hamlet is. Hamlet, I submit to you, is more so than Macbeth, more so than King Lear, more so than The Tempest. I think more so than anything Shakespeare ever wrote. And again, Shakespeare wrote some quality stuff. But Hamlet, for this poor internet critic's buck, gives you the most stuff per minute, the most quality, memorable, beautiful, piercing insightful, moving stuff per minute. It's just a perfect piece of art. I mean, it is the Mona Lisa. It is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It is Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's, it's one of those artifacts that no matter what angle you take on it, no matter which way you look at it, no matter what page you flip to, you're going to find and see something perfect, something that excites you again. Something that just makes you excited at what words can do. 
makes you not just excited about the story of Hamlet, but excited about literature itself. Like, oh yeah, I forgot. Sometimes I, you know, I, I talk about books for a living on this podcast, or or, or I, I read books for pleasure, and I forget these things. This this particular medium is capable of soaring up into the stratosphere when done properly. Hamlet on almost every page of the manuscript or every moment of a performance done well, be it cinematically or on the stage, it reminds you of what words can do, of what acting can do, of, of, of what the, the medium of, of playwriting can achieve. It makes you excited to go write your own stuff, actually, if you're an idiot, which you should be. You should be. I mean, how else does somebody become an author but read something that soars into the stratosphere and think, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that? It's just like, why does anybody play basketball besides they, they, they see some footage of Kobe or Michael Jordan or something like that? And they think, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that, which is idiotic. You're never going to do that. You're not going to be Shakespeare. You're not going to be Michael Jordan. You're not going to be Steve Jobs. But we need our North Stars when we set sail in any field. And, and and Shakespeare is that. Shakespeare is that. And Hamlet, for my money, just has more of those things that remind you of how great the man was. And it's just always delightful to rediscover the context. It's one of the fun things about going back to a movie after years of not watching it. You know, something that you really like, maybe you've seen a few times, but you, you haven't so thoroughly, you know, it's not Wizard of Oz. You don't just know it beat by beat. But maybe you've seen it once or twice. It's, it's a delight, delightful thing that used to happen in theatrical versus home video viewing. You'd go see something in the theater a couple times and, or, or, or maybe once if you weren't a movie-loving teenager like I was. But you'd see it in the theater and you'd be like, this is great. And you'd absorb a lot of it. But then you wouldn't be able to watch it until it came out on home video. And so when you'd wait and they used to have these long theatrical windows and then a, a certain amount of time before it hit on home video. And finally, this movie that you liked would hit on home video and you'd get it and you'd have all these out of context moments that you loved, lines of dialogue or beats from the action scenes or whatever. And what's delightful is not so much, I mean, it is delightful to see those moments again, but it's also delightful to see Oh, that's where that star is anchored in the sky. That's where that constellation is. I knew I loved the constellation, but what really makes me love the constellation is seeing where it is in the context of all the other stars. And so, oh, yeah, I liked it when Indiana Jones ran from that boulder. But now that I have the home video version, I can see all the stuff that got him there and I can remember exactly when it comes. And it's just it's, it's kind of fun. Because as I've argued before on this podcast and maybe on the movies podcast too, uh, part of what makes art delightful is the combination of absolute surprise and delight and absolute inevitability. We like to know about where we are in a story and we like to kind of see what's coming, but then we also like to be surprised by it. And when you watch or read Hamlet, unless you're a Shakespeare scholar, you will be surprised by things again. You will, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever watched this play or read it and not thought, oh yeah, that line comes from this. Oh yeah, that moment comes. Oh yeah, that happened. Oh yeah, that's cool. I've got about that. Or, or I knew it was somewhere, you know, it's part of my consciousness, but it's like somebody just took a spoon, stirred up my brain, and then some things came to the top of the, the brain soup that don't usually come to the top. Hamlet just has so many of those. 
That's so awesome. And I don't know, I'm just rambling here, but what's my next point? What's the next? I've, I've, I've lost count. I don't know how many I'm in um, or even what point I was in there, but what is the next reason why I love Hamlet and I'm excited to talk about it. I love Hamlet himself, actually. I really like Hamlet. I'm rooting for that guy. I'm pulling for him. And something that I love about this play and something that I love about the best tragedies, certainly, but just the best works of literature in general. Well, uh, let me talk about it negatively, actually. Let me say what it oftentimes doesn't look like. So in many tragedies, the protagonist just feels like an instrument of fate or like the punching bag of fate. Someone who exists in order to have the bad things that happen, happen to them. You cannot imagine a plausible alternate reality where things went right for them. I mean, a movie like Fargo, wonderful, you know, one of my, one of my favorite movies. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't say that because it's perverse in some ways, but a movie that for better or worse, I've enjoyed a lot. Fargo, the Jerry Lundergaard character, the, William H. Macy character. It was never going to go right for him. There is no plausible version of reality where everything doesn't turn to garbage in his life. Maybe it could have been a different flavor of garbage. Maybe he could have been covered in flies instead of covered in eggshells. But either way, the guy is finding himself at the bottom of a mountain of garbage because he exists to be a jerk and a patsy and to get pushed around. And, and that's how Greek tragedy often feels. Like there, There's no version of Antigone who doesn't have the terrible things happen to her. We don't know what she existed to do beyond be dealt a bad hand, suffer, and die. And that can be entirely effective. Sometimes you want characters to feel that way. There are reasons to write a character that way. That's fine. But I really love in something like Hamlet, where you can see a plausible alternate realities, happy alternate realities for all these characters. You can imagine what Ophelia would be like if she married Hamlet. You can imagine what she would be like if she got over Hamlet and was allowed to just find a man more of her station. You can see how Hamlet would have been just the saucy, somewhat given to melancholy, but ultimately pretty cool son of the king who eventually becomes king of himself. You can see the man that he could have been, the man that he should have been. You can understand Rosencrantz and Gilderstern as just his kind of funny, goofy friends. You can understand Claudius as a very plausibly good king. He does not exist primarily and only to be the skulking villain. He makes a great skulking villain the way that he uses he's used in the story. But you understand that if there was no Hamlet, this guy could have just gotten away with it and he would have been fine. He would have been a f- perfectly effective king because there's more to him. There's more dimensionality than just the bad guy in the story. To take kind of a silly counterpoint, but one that's based on Hamlet, so why not use it as a counterpoint? You don't really know, ever get the idea that Scar would have been or was a plausible king of Pride Rock in The Lion King. Scar was just a bad guy who existed to be a betrayer, who existed to be a bad guy. Claudius is much more complicated than that. And I just love that. I just, it, it really adds to the sense of weight, to the sense of 
fate and to the sense of tragedy where you don't just see this these people walking a sad foreordained path. You see them stumbling, choosing different paths, and then eventually falling off the cliff. But it doesn't necessarily feel inevitable, except for, of course, it does. Once you know, When somebody stumbles that effectively towards a cliff, you kind of have to say, well, there was method in that madness. Another great quote from Hamlet, you know, I mean, they, they found their ultimate fate and in retrospect, it's all kind of inevitable, but you can actually imagine this story where Hamlet decides not to trust the ghost, where he just doesn't get revenge, where he does get revenge and he pulls it off and becomes a good king, where Claudius destroys Hamlet, wins and rules as a good king. Nothing feels set in stone. Here, these characters are all full of life, full of, to use a couple of pretentious words, dimensionality and interiority. They all feel like they could plausibly go in so many different directions, and, and not because they don't have defined characteristics, not because they aren't real people who behave in certain predictable ways, but because they are, in fact, the real part of real people who behave in predictable ways. I love the character of Polonius, for example. You know, some productions will play him as a bumbling old fool. Some productions will play him as this smart, manipulative old man. And then some productions will try and split the difference from scene to scene. But I think you always kind of have to do the last one. You have to split the difference. Because the fact is, Polonius is, in fact, in some ways, a bumbling old man. And in some ways a really shrewd manipulator and you know ultimately he's foolish and he gets himself killed but he's had gambits like that before that have worked he's had gambits his whole life that have worked everything that he's done has made sense up until the point where it didn't and then he died because he's playing a high stakes game but he's not just some buffoon Ophelia isn't you know she's she's maybe the one that gets treated the worst she gets the crappiest hand dealt her by destiny. She is just, in a very womanly way, this passive figure, someone who really does exist to be the punching bag of Hamlet and of Polonius and of Laertes and of everybody and then dies <laughs> for their sins, you know, which, which is entirely sad. And look, it's, the way, it's, 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 it's how life works, actually. In, in the patriarchal world that God made, broken by sin, women and children often are the collateral damage. And I don't consider the fact that Ophelia doesn't have that much agency in her own destruction to be a flaw of this particular play. I consider it to be a virtue. I think it's true to life. I think it's what happens. Sometimes young ladies just get chewed up and spit out by the system. And it's sad and it's not how things should be, but it is how things are. And Ophelia is a very plausible version of that. But even Ophelia, you can see so many different directions that she could have gone, so many different choices that she should could have made. And the character has so much more life than the little bits that we're allowed to see of her. And, and, and you really get to wonder and speculate about what she was like, what her and Hamlet's romance was like. There's so many different, just barely offstage aspects of this play that are fun to speculate. You know, what was Hamlet's friendship with Horatio? How did that work? What was his friendship with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? How did that work? 
How much does Gertrude love or not love Claudius? How much did she love or not love the old king? There's so many different questions you can ask. And you don't need the answers, really. The fun is asking the question. The fun is speculating. The fun is seeing where the clues are. And there's just so much here. It's just, it's such a rich feast. The only thing that comes close is Anna Karenina or War and Peace. I mean, Tolstoy is the only comparison point to Hamlet. And Tolstoy always takes a thousand pages to do what Shakespeare does in the space of a few hours on stage. I mean, Tolstoy to pack this much density, this much character work, this much just pure undiluted literature. Shakespeare is just like, okay, um, I'm, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Tolstoy, you, you did it in 2,000 pages. You did it over the course of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words. I'm going to do it in much, much less. <laughs> Because I'm Shakespeare, and I am the greatest author who ever lived, and Hamlet is my masterpiece. That is what I'm going to be arguing, by the way. When I do finally get Jake and Brandon, I hope starting next week on this podcast, I will be arguing that Hamlet is Shakespeare's masterpiece, in case you haven't figured that out. I don't think anything comes close. I mean, I think Shakespeare's a genius. I think all of his plays are wonderful, and his best plays, you know, your Romeo and Juliet, your King Lear, whatever, they are among the masterpieces of the Western canon and all that. And Hamlet's in a class by its own. I mean, everything the Beatles ever did was genius, but Sgt. Pepper's is still Sgt. Pepper's. Abbey Road is still Abbey Road. Everything Da Vinci did was genius, but the Mona Lisa is still Mona Lisa. And to me, that's Hamlet. That's Hamlet. I mean, it is so much fun. Such a classic. I don't know. I, I wonder if most people think of Hamlet as homework or they think of it as genius. Like the people listening to this right now, they're like, well, this is Obviously, I want to know about this. I want to be part of the conversation. I want to be fluent in the language that is Shakespeare and the language that is Hamlet. I, I want to be able to enter into this, but, but is it something that they really enter into? For me, as I've often said on this podcast, some of the other plays, some of the great other plays, your Macbeths and things like that, I have trouble entering into. I, I can regard them as beautiful artifacts, but I don't step into the world. I don't live there. I, I, I can love it. I can find a lot to admire. I can find a lot to be enriched by in a Macbeth, but I don't just live in Macbeth, you know? I mean, it is the difference between Mona Lisa and some other painting of a lady that Leonardo da Vinci did. There's just something about the look in Mona Lisa's eyes. It's indelible. You couldn't really put your finger on it, but you know... You just keep wanna looking at it. You just keep wanna look looking at it? Look did I say that right? You just keep want to go on looking at it. You wanna try and figure it out. You wanna get in there and figure out what the mystery is. You know, all great art I think has an element of mystery to it. If you can figure out exactly what makes something great, then it isn't truly great. There has to be this ineffable quality, something that you can't quite put your finger on. Maybe it is just inspiration. Maybe it is just something that God gives to certain people at certain times in their careers for certain pieces of art. You know, what is it? You can talk about the fact that Abbey Road is shorter than the White Album, is this, is that, but what is it that makes Abbey Road, Abbey Road? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this, you know, Come Together's a great song. Something's a great, okay, there's great songs, but the White Album has great songs. Every Beatles album has masterpiece songs on it. They're the Beatles. So why is Abbey Road, Abbey Road? 
I don't think you can really say. I don't think that there is an answer to that question. It just is. Why, you know, Mona Lisa is probably the best example. Why is Mona Lisa better than all the other paintings? Why, why is it just, why do you keep wanting to look at it? It's, it's precisely because there is something there that you'll never figure out. You'll never solve the mystery of why all those songs flow so well into each other at the end of Abbey Road. You'll never solve the mystery of what Mona Lisa is thinking. You'll never really know whether Hamlet was completely feigning madness or whether he was a little mad or whether he was all the way mad. And those are the kinds of questions that keep you coming back to a really, really, really great work of art. I mean, I think Jane Austen must have some of that mystery in her best work in order to be so endearing. Maybe it's just the mystery of, do I even like these people? (laughs) If I met Mr. Darcy, if I met Elizabeth Bennet, would I actually like them? I sure like them in the story, but do I need that distance in order to like this person who can be so proud and this person can be so, who can be so prejudiced? I don't know. This is not a Jane Austen podcast. This is a Shakespeare podcast. And I, you know, Shakespeare writes long monologues and rapture of different things. So I thought I'd do a long monologue and rapture of Shakespeare. Man, I really like Hamlet. If people have specific thoughts or questions about Hamlet, don't hesitate to write them in. Let's make this discussion as rich as possible. Let's make this some really classic episodes of The Booking. Let's get Brandon on here and Jake on here and let's talk about this thing and let's just, let's do a deep dive. Let's put all of their booking episodes to shame. Let's put close reads to shame. Let's put, I don't know, the New York Times podcast of books. What are the other literature podcasts? Let's do something great with Hamlet. It deserves it. It deserves it. It is, along with Anna Karenina and a handful of other things that we've read, just simply a masterpiece. And I'm so excited and so happy to talk about it. And I hope that that had a little bit of a shape to it, a little bit of coherence to it. I was not working from notes in this particular case or anything like that. So I, unlike Shakespeare, am not someone who can just spout genius completely. Although if you listen to these podcasts, you know, I am a frequent spouter of genius. Is that how I should introduce myself? A frequent spouter of genius? Well, I know how I introduce this podcast is the golden ticket to quality infotainment and happy we are for it to be the golden ticket to quality infotainment. Very happy. Oh boy, I'm yawning. All right. It's late. I'm going to go to bed. But thanks for listening to me wax eloquent about Hamlet. Happy to do it. Always happy to do it. Hamlet rules. This play rules. Can't wait to go a lot deeper with the fellas. I don't think I'm going to read the patrons all by myself. But man, I love the patrons. Thank you for making this show possible. Patreon.com forward slash the booking is the place to go to support this show. Hey, somebody just messaged me and said, I pay lots of money to make you read books and I want you to read Moby Dick. So I think we're going to be reading Moby Dick thanks to one of our patrons, which I'm excited to finally take the plunge. Actually, I like Moby Dick. I mean, the character seems like a bit of a jerk, a whale, a bit of a dumb mammal. I was going to say dumb fish, but he's a dumb mammal. Always taking off people's legs and 
killing people. I don't know. We don't have to litigate Moby Dick right now. I'm getting tired, folks. I'm running down. Better stop. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash the booketing. Bye.